Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming at KPFK, Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, California, and Pacifica Radio affiliate Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts. Here's an interview on the developments in safer streets after the car killing of a Northampton, Massachusetts resident, Charlie Braun. I'm Nick Richard. Galen Mook, executive director of MassBike, brings us the interview. This is Galen Mook. I'm the executive director of MassBike and co-host of Bike Talk here with Nick and a few others and our bi-coastal show that we're creating. Let's do a quick intros, if you each could introduce each other. Hi, everybody. I'm George Kohout. I'm a resident of Northampton. I'm currently the president of Friends of the Northampton Trail, which is a nonprofit that works to promote not only the use of the rail trail network and trails in the conservation areas, but also tries to promote bicycle riding and alternative transportation in the area and the region, actually. I'll pass it over to Elena. Great. And I think something that George might have forgotten to add is that he's the unofficial mayor of Northampton. Every time I see him around town, he's always chatting with someone. And I see him often, so he's around. My name is Elena Hoosman, and I'm also a resident of Northampton. I live in the village of Florence, and I am relatively new to the area. I've moved out here about a year and a half ago, and I am a PhD student at UMass Amherst in the regional planning department, where my research is focusing on climate adaptation. My experience in bike advocacy comes from living in Brookline and being on the bicycle advisory committee there for a couple of years before moving out to Western Mass and getting involved with the Main Street for Everyone, Friends of Northampton Trails, and that's how I met. George, and then now the new group that we've recently started, which is Safe Streets Northampton. Awesome. We do statewide work at Mass Bike, so we are very involved with what's going on in Northampton. And currently, I'm actually out in Eastern Mass. I'm outdoors, so my apologies if the wind picks up just where you caught me during the interview. But I'm very proud of what George has been up to with the bike donation program and the Northampton Trails and what Elena has been up to to promote the Main Street redesign of Northampton. There's a lot going on in your neck of the woods. But today, what I want to talk about is specifically Charlie's Law, which is, as I understand, an augmentation of the hands-free cell phone use when driving law, which would prohibit people who are operating automobiles from utilizing video screens. And this is in reaction to a fatal crash that happened in Northampton at the end of last year. So I kind of want to get a little bit of background. Let me take like six steps back. George and Elena, can you talk a little bit about what the situation was around the death of Charlie Braun and what that meant for the community? And then we can kind of get into how the law is going to come into play here. Charlie unfortunately had a tragic accident during the daytime hours in front of our local high school, which is a notoriously tough intersection, a lot of pedestrian activity, a couple of intersections, cars turning, parents dropping kids off, you know, kids being kids running across the street. So it's never been a great spot. And it's also a busy state road, Route 9, that goes up to the local hospital that goes right downtown. Eleanor herself uses it quite a bit on her bicycle, so it's a heavily traveled road. And one afternoon, Charlie was riding his bike, which he often does. Charlie was one of those regular bike commuters going back and forth to East Hampton, to the high school, his daily chores. He was not an outrageously unsafe driver. He was a conservative fellow in his mid-60s. But anyhow, he was struck from behind by a vehicle. And unfortunately, the young woman driving the car, they found out after the fact that she was doing some video chatting with someone else in a distance and had a young baby in the back. So was certainly distracted from driving the car safely. 
as those things often happen, the news leaked out slowly about Charlie's death, other than a man was killed. The driver stayed on the scene, wasn't a lot of explanation. Immediately, Charlie's friends got together. A ghost bike appeared at the site, sad, but a useful reminder to other motorists that they need to share the road with us. It caused quite a stir in the local biking community and also in the news outlets around the area. And what it did also do right away, as Elena said earlier, it ignited a lot of concern by the people in our city, both at the high school, the administration, at the DPW that manages the streets, and at our city council and mayor to take a quick look at that area in front of the high school and try to set some things in motion. What they immediately were able to do is restrict some parking on that street so that visibility would become better. They added some crossing guards. They also did an ordinance at the city council to prohibit U-turns right at that exact location. So there was so much car traffic going on at various different things. Stopping the U-turn was a big help in keeping the traffic much more streamlined and orderly. I was able to be involved with the PTO at the high school because many parents got involved right away. Charlie's death, unfortunately, brought this to the dinner table. And parents and children were talking about it quite a bit. And what can we do to keep our children safe? What can we do for their dropping off at the high school? What can we do at the grammar schools? When will this happen again? The PTO has done a lot of work with the high school administration to start looking at some different alternatives for pickup and drop off by parents. The city council is working with the DPW director to also look at some strategic kind of changes to the traffic patterns around there to hopefully prevent anything like this happening again. So that was my quick take on just the direct impact, unfortunately, the positive impact, I guess, of Charlie's death locally. And then, of course, more statewide, our local senator, Joe Comerford, right away got on trying to enhance our hands-free legislation. Not only should we not be using our telephone, holding it in our hands, but there should be no video in the cars. This is the new rider, I think. No video in the cars other than a dash cam as needed. But Galen, I can let you talk to more about that or Elena perhaps may know more about that additional legislation. Yeah, I'm happy to hop in in a minute and talk a little bit about where I'm at in the legislative perspective. But before I do, I want to pass it to you to talk a little bit about the context of riding. Specifically, George mentioned that you're a regular rider at this area of Route 9. And I also know that you're intimately involved with the Main Streets for Everyone. If you could talk a little bit about kind of what the lay of the land of advocacy going on in Northampton and how does Charlie's death kind of galvanize this? As George mentioned, there was a lot of fast action and it's sad that a tragedy is needed to take place. Was there conversations in advance here? Where does this incident in your eyes, fall amongst already either ongoing or soon to come in Northampton advocacy? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say when I first moved to Northampton just a little over a year and a half ago, I was surprised to learn that there was very little advocacy around infrastructure on streets. Friends of Northampton Trails does an incredible job of advocating for and securing and building out and maintaining our trail system here in Northampton, which is an off-street rail trail, which connects a number of municipalities from Leeds to Florence to Northampton, all of which are in Northampton, but then to East Hampton, Hadley, on to Amherst, which is a major commuter corridor for folks living in Northampton commuting to Amherst. So there's a lot of work on the trail side of things, and I think there's a larger gap in the ecosystem for advocacy on on on-street infrastructure in terms of bike infrastructure. And so when I first moved here, I was surprised to learn that coming from Brookline and Boston, where there's quite a bit of activity happening 
wanting to see ways in which I could plug in. And I think it was pretty serendipitous in that the Main Street redesign process was going on where there was talks of increasing bicycle infrastructure, not just a bike lane on Main Street, which we currently don't have, but a protected bike lane and also widening the sidewalks and increasing the tree belt. All of those things come into play on the Main Street side of things. And so there was a group of us who were activated by that. And I think that was somewhat of a spurring moment where we changed directions from focusing on trails to really thinking about what we could do on street. And while we were hyper-focused on Main Street, we also recognized that Main Street can be this example of what our streets could look like, but how do you get to Main Street safely without a broader bicycle network? And so as a cyclist, a daily commuter going to various places in Northampton, but namely riding my bike from my house to the bus stop to then take the bus to UMass, I ride through this particular intersection in which Charlie was killed daily. I actually rode by the day that he was killed and his bicycle was still in the street. The street was still closed and there was a police presence. And so I think it's just a reminder that we are failing so many people in our community who don't have access to a car or choosing to live car-free or car-light lifestyle. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring diverse coalitions into the conversation. So I think something that Charlie's death in particular has done is to bring a lot of parents and students and young people to the conversation who have previously not been there. And so it's a really exciting time in Northampton where we're thinking more strategically, not just in particular intersections where these crashes are occurring, but how can we build out a broader network to really connect and utilize the trails that we have? And I don't want to diminish the trails because they're beautiful and one of my favorite pieces of Northampton, but they don't take you everywhere. And so how can you connect on-street infrastructure with trail infrastructure and vice versa, and then also connect to broader key pieces of infrastructure or destinations in town? So whether it's the hospital, schools, shopping districts, the university. And so all of those things are at play in this, and it's an exciting time in Northampton. Yeah, George, I'm curious too for you to jump in a little bit on the history of the Friends of Northampton Trail. And I know biking in Northampton is wonderful until you get downtown. It's terrifying downtown. For those of you who are on radio land and have never been there, there's angled parking. There's parking that is in the center of this kind of crazy main street where trucks are unloading. It's a very busy pedestrian corridor as well because there's Smith College and all the retail that's just very busy in a very compact downtown. But it's kind of surrounded arguably by very rural, bucolic, lightly populated areas. So you're imagining people who might be driving and not used to seeing pedestrians or people on bike, and then they enter this slightly chaotic downtown and have to modify their behavior. But then again, there's this beautiful pathway network, which in the end will connect hundreds and hundreds of miles of pathways from Boston to Connecticut. So how do you find the politics, the city governance, the support for the split between recreational riders on the pathways, and then the utilitarian riders who need to be accessing arguably a hard downtown? Yep. Thanks, Gail. And that was a great description from an out-of-towner of our Northampton landscape. Well done. <laughs> you know, I think we live in a pretty progressive town, to be sure, Northampton. So there's a lot of colleges around. Currently, we have a pretty progressive city council. We've had a planning department that has always had a priority around open space, conservation areas, the trail network, things of that nature. So that's been really good. You know, every town deals with their Department of Public Works. That main priority is to maintain streets and sidewalks for the automobile. I think what we've got to do now in this age is try to change that culture a little bit. 
to see if we can't get every Jane and Joe to think about not using their car or being car light, as Ellen has said, so that we can move away from putting all of our resources into roads and hard pavement and parking spots and immediate snow plowing of roads, things of that nature, and turn some of those budgets, some of that attention to our alternative transportation, whether that's for better sidewalks for pedestrians, improved crosswalks, a transit system out here in Western Mass that serve everybody that it needs to serve. How do we get our budgets to really work on those kinds of transportation things? So that's part of the politics. I think what we're also working with, too, is we do have a lot of young people around because of the colleges. We have a lot of progressive people. There's this urgency around the climate change, climate action that needs to happen. And one of the biggest impacts that we can do is to move away from our cars and that kind of fossil fuel usage and move towards much less dependence on cars and automobiles. So that is another kind of a culture change that we're all trying to do, I think, across the Commonwealth. I think one of the goals of our new organization, Safe Streets Northampton, is to try to impact the governance of the city wherever we can, whether that's on a city commission or a committee or talking to the DPW talking to city councilors, but keeping the conversation going. Three or four of us had a great conversation with some city councilors the other day, an informal conversation, and they're definitely aligned with the idea of trying to limit traffic speeds in the city, have a much lower uniform speed of perhaps 25 or 20 within the city. They're interested in looking at the DPW's budget to see how they could realign some of the priorities there and precipitated by the Main Street redesign. I think they're really interested in starting to change the culture of our community as dependent upon cars. So that's part of the politics of what's going on. I think for us in Northampton, again, because we're a progressive city, things move along pretty well. I think in time, the big challenge is to help our neighboring communities of Holyoke and Chicopee and Springfield, those gateway communities who are so much further behind that kind of political will to move away from cars and to start building a bike and pedestrian infrastructure. So there was a lot there. Thanks for the question. Yeah, that, that is a lot. And I think a couple of things that flag it for me is the arguments around climate can amplify the arguments around safety. I think that's very important. It's almost like you have to find what the political wins are at the time. And you have a new mayor in Northampton. Is that right? Right. Do you know what she's got in her agenda or what B she's got in her bonnet? Is there a particular angle that would work specifically for Northampton, not the other surrounding cities, because everyone's kind of got their own? But what are you leaning into, I should say, because there's so many different reasons why biking is good for everybody. Elena, I'm going to pass one to you. Yeah, I would say at Safe Streets Northampton, we're really having conversations around budget allocation and having those conversations with DPW and city councilors around ways in which we can drastically change the budgetary line items that we're seeing right now in DPW's budget and planning department's budgets for the long term. But I would say short term, we're really having discussions around what pilot projects might look like. What can we do that's more budget friendly? Because unfortunately, oftentimes it does come down to dollars and cents of the political will of the mayor and the city council. They definitely run a tight ship when it comes down to that. And so thinking creatively about ways in which we can demonstrate the effectiveness of having some more light touch infrastructure changes on key streets in Northampton so that 
we're able to build that narrative and political will to then have sea change later down the line. I would say Gina Louise, our new mayor, it's really exciting to have her in office. She's been a strong proponent of Main Street for Everyone's vision in terms of reducing the space allocated to cars on Main Street. What that looks like and shakes out to be is still up in the air a bit, but we know that she has been pretty strong on reducing the number of parking spots on Main Street, thinking about parallel parking versus angled parking, making sure that there's wide tree belts, that the bike lanes on Main Street are connecting to the bike trails and that they're not just dumping you out as initial plans were on an uphill part of the street, (laughs) which was absurd to see in the plans. And we've had those conversations with the mayor And she does seem really willing to work with us and is thinking about the long-term effects, both for Northampton, but then more broadly around climate change as well. Yeah, that's great. And with my next question, I don't mean to poke the bear too much, but you mentioned the dollars and cents aspect of it. How is the business community reacting to some of the conversations around the advocacy? And I only say this because I know that it's not going to be necessarily an easy answer here. And also everybody in every municipality across the whole country tackles this when you have to remove parking spaces or the conversation comes around parking spaces. It's the businesses that step up to fight that, regardless of whether it's in their interests or not, or whether they have most of their patrons arriving not by car or not having somebody die right in front of their store or something along those lines, which obviously is better for business. So I'm curious, how is it going in Northampton from the businesses? And is there a strategy to help get them on board? I can speak to this and then George, feel free to add. I think Main Street has done an incredible job of building a coalition of business owners. So I would say back in August 2020, George, is that correct? We had a pilot program in Northampton where they did a quick build on Main Street to demonstrate bike lanes. They switched parking from angled parking to parallel parking and a very loud minority of business owners were incredibly upset. And the mayor, who's no longer in office, but about two weeks later, ripped out the entire installation, which was about a $200,000 investment. And folks like us were pretty upset about that. I don't think I even had a chance to ride the bike lanes on Main Street. So I think all of that is to say that Like in every municipality and city, there are businesses who are adamantly against removing parking. But I would say Main Street has done a really good job at having conversations and literally knocking on doors of businesses and speaking with business owners. And we built a coalition of, I don't remember the final count, but over 50 business owners who were supporting our vision of Main Street for everyone, who supported those bike lanes and wider sidewalks and less parking. And it was no easy feat. We had volunteers, and I can't take any credit for this, but there were volunteers who were going door to door, having those conversations with business owners. And as it turns out, it was a really small minority of businesses that happened to be very loud who would come to the public meetings to speak out against losing that parking. But George, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that experience. No, that's very accurate. And I think parking is just such a loaded issue in little cities like ourselves and certainly in bigger cities. I serve on the planning board in town too. So anytime there's any kind of new development, residential, commercial, academic, there's always a question about parking. You're going to steal my parking spaces. There won't be enough for these new people moving in. My customers need to see the parking out front rather than in the back of the stores. Customers won't walk that 35 extra feet from a municipal parking lot to my store. They need to park in front. There's a lot of old, tired kind of horses out there that keep speaking to that. And I think what Main Street for Everyone did really well is reach out to some of the younger business owners in town. And also we tried to get people to look five years down the road when the ride hailing 
opportunities. The Lyfts and the Ubers and the self-drive cars are going to definitely be much more prevalent in our cities. And that's going to really deflate the need for so much more parking so close to stores. They'll be able to drop me off in front of my CVS and pick me up 20 minutes later, half an hour later. And young people get that. Young people understand that when they're coming to a new city, first thing they do is they Google, okay, where do I park? Where's the app to pay for my parking? They don't need to find a spot right on Main Street. So in the planning world, you always need to be looking 5, 10, 25 years down the road. What are the other things that are coming up that's going to impact these situations? So yeah, that was a tough one, but I think the Main Street for Everyone group and the new mayor really did listen to those business owners, but also were able to provide them with enough rationale and alternative notions about how to deal with the parking crunch, so to speak, in order to allay some of their fears. So I think pretty soon the DOT will come out with a 25% or more design for the Main Street for Everyone. And I think we'll be really happy to see some of the enhancements that are being done. That's great. And one, I'm very impressed that you're able to get 50 businesses on board with you too. And I think that's a good sign for anybody out there listening in. If you want to get the business districts on board, that has some of the most sway with some of those elected officials to move it. So great work there, even if you can't take credit for it a lot. And I'll also say that I hate how the reality of it is that sometimes this show turns into parking talk because there's just so much conflict between bike infrastructure and on-street parking, especially in Massachusetts. We have a fixed width. And unfortunately, a lot of that's been given over to people who feel like they can just store their personal vehicles on public space. But I'm preaching to the choir here, so let me move on. In the four or five minutes left with you two, I want to switch gears a little bit and remind everyone to check out Northampton's Main Street for All campaign. And before I move on, is there a website that folks can check out while we're on this topic? Yeah, we do have a website. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I'll look it up quickly. <laughs> cool. We'll put it on our SoundCloud. Don't worry. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about Charlie's Law, which is obviously named in honor of Charlie Braun and from Senator Joe Comerford, Mass Bike Vote with her office to work with the law. And there's a hearing on Wednesday, which will be before the show airs. So maybe we can do an update, but it's moving along in a sense, but I'm happy to give a little bit of background. But before I do for you two, what does it mean for your advocacy movement to have a state senator take on a local issue and kind of make it a statewide case? Is this important for you? Does this help with the family? Does this help with the arguments? Or is this something that doesn't necessarily change the trajectory of where you're going? Well, I'll speak from a little personal side, Galen. Charlie was a neighbor of mine. I didn't know him really well, but he lived a couple of houses down. His partner, Joan, is working very closely with Senator Comerford to do this. It certainly impacted her life. She sees this as now her mission. She has two young daughters who live with their smartphones, so she understands that it's not something we're going to be able to eliminate entirely. But she certainly was just overly thrilled that Joe Comerford reacted as quickly and as strongly and efficiently as she did to move this distracted driving legislation another step forward. Because we all know that the technology, the money and the corporations behind the technology around video calls are only getting more and more efficient and more and more ubiquitous. So we really need to be able to start pushing back in some ways. And this is one way to do it. And I'll add that Senator Comerford is not only sponsoring this bill in particular, but also spearheading the other bill around where it's allowing municipalities to set their own speed limits on many of their roadways. So I think that bill in particular has a big impact on our efforts as Safe Streets Northampton in particular, because time and time again, when we're in advocacy or at public meetings and advocating for different street designs, we get pushback saying that they're designing for the speed limit on that particular street. And 
they can't do anything to change the speed limit on that street. And so having Senator Comerford on both of these bills really speaks to the fact that it's not just a one-off opportunity where a constituent of hers was killed. It really shows that she stands behind people who are biking and pedestrians more so than just this one-off symbol of solidarity with a constituent who's passed. Yeah, I really appreciate that too. And the breadth of her office's interest in road safety and traffic safety is very evident. I know that they have the passion. My little bad background while I have the floor for a few minutes is the hands-free bill for those who are tuning in outside of Massachusetts. We hadn't had a very strong hands-free while driving law. We've had no texting while driving for a while, but obviously texting was flip phones T9 ago. We've gone well leaps and bounds beyond. So what we've been doing literally for 10 years, the bill was first filed in 2009 and it got passed in 2019, was to get the hands in the equation. So your hands have to be in the steering wheel. And at least that's a way for the police officers to indicate whether or not you were distracted. So it's been back and forth. We wanted to make sure that there were strong ACLU components to it to make sure that this was not done inequitably. Uh, The enforcement's not done inequitably. So there's a tie-in to it to make sure that there's data tracking of the demographics of who's being pulled over year over year. So that's something that was a very important element to it. Other elements to it were that new cars have to be equipped with Bluetooth. That's part of the rental car conversation in Massachusetts, that you have to have a Bluetooth capacity so that there is the ability, at least technologically, to have it be hands-free. And then there's emergency situations where if you're calling 911, if you're looking for directions, that is a way to get around. So not to say you have an excuse for having a phone in your hand, but that was kind of built into the law. But what has happened, because it took 10 years for the bill to pass, this technology moved forwards and laws take a long time to get passed. So we're playing catch up now. And even though the bill was passed just last session in 2019, it's already kind of outdated, which I think is evident with this amendment that Senator Comerford's trying to get through. So in my opinion, I think this strengthens the bill by at least saying that the video recording, unless it's being done for safety purposes, can't be displayed. So you can have closed circuit, you can have video recording of police interactions, which is also important because we want to make sure that the police are accountable out there. I don't have all the stipulations in my mind, but it's important to balance the needs of information protection for everyday citizens versus the needs for traffic safety. And that's a hard balance to be making. And I think we're striking the right chord with this amendment. That's great, Galen. And I really want to take this moment, too, to thank you and your staff out in Boston for all the work you do at our state house, advocating, lobbying for those kind of safe street bills. It's just great. I don't know if other states have the luxury of a mass bike machine like Massachusetts does, but you folks are doing a great job there. So I really appreciate that work you're doing. Thanks, George. I take that to heart. And again, this is a local issue that's being elevated. So I'm going to turn it back on you and say thank you for what you're doing in Northampton and otherwise, because it really does come from the individual. And my job is to kind of keep it on a statewide level and while you keep it on the Northampton level and let's just find ways to collaborate, resource share. And I look forward to coming out to Northampton and riding that main street. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. can't wait to have you out. Cool. Well, with that, I think we're at time on this interview. I want to thank you both, George Cahote from Friends of Northampton Trails and Elena Houseman from Main Streets for Everyone and Amherst and Academia and everything else that you're doing out there. (laughs) There's, There's a lot of overlap. Okay, keep on riding. You're listening to Bike Talk. Laura Keenan is a San Diego bike advocate who was activated when her husband Matt was killed by a driver who drove the wrong way for 100 yards into a bike lane. Laura co-wrote an op-ed in the San Diego Union Tribune, San Diego needs to do more to protect cyclists, prevent needless deaths. Laura is joined in this interview by Southern California Families for Safe Streets co-founder, Grandma Beverly Shelton. Welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me here and just giving me the opportunity to get my voice out and get these issues out more publicly too. So thank you. 
And we have Grandma Beverly here, who I wanted to introduce you to, because you said you wanted to get connected with Families for Safe Streets. Beverly is with Families for Safe Streets, Southern California. Hi, Beverly. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Hi, Beverly. It's nice to meet you. And I actually have been meaning to reach out to you. So really great to meet you here. So you said you're focusing on a couple of things. One is the protected lane debate. Are you involved in any of these right now? You're fighting for quick builds? Yep. So I've been partnering a lot with the San Diego Bike Coalition. That's actually the organization I co-wrote the op-ed with. And they have been steerheading a quick build proposal for the city of San Diego, which is encouraging the city to do quick build projects, which are bike infrastructure projects that create class four protected bike lanes in as little as three weeks and provide often up to 95% of the safety measures of more intense infrastructure projects that take years and maybe sometimes never even happen. The mayor of San Diego, Todd Gloria, recently created a team dedicated to quick build projects, and they're committed to building nine miles of protected bike lanes every year. And it's really great that the mayor of San Diego is committed to building these nine miles of protected bike lanes every year, but it's still really far from what's needed. And to be able to meet a lot of the climate goals and transportation goals, as well as zero traffic death goals as part of Vision Zero in 2025, we need a lot more than nine miles of protected bike lanes. I'm interested in the quick build idea. What is the difference between a quick build and a regular protected bike lane? So most regular protected bike lanes, like class four bike lanes, require a lot of approval through here in San Diego, at least through SANDAG, which is a county organization that plans all infrastructure projects and often take years to do. Quick builds created with a lot cheaper materials. So often it's these plastic reflective bollards that are up. They still create the space that's needed and creates that buffer between the cyclists and the roadways. But it's not often like a concrete barrier, which is ideal for sure, but it's still protecting the cyclists a lot more than it would in a class two bike lane that's just a stripe on the road. I feel like I should know all about this already. I'm a bad bike advocate. If no, not, know. not at all. My understanding, and I'm definitely not the expert in this space, but my understanding is San Francisco was one of the first cities to really implement this. And the mayor there was able to sign a declaration that he's committed to it. And similar in San Diego, I don't know if all cities are structured this way, but the mayor has the ability to sign these commitments and implement them. So it's a fast track way and a cheaper way to get class four bike lanes in the city. All right. Well, that's smart. And then I guess maybe down the road, they can make them more permanent. Exactly. So for example, here in San Diego, there's a street called Pershing Road, a 50 mile an hour street. And last year, within a few months of each other, one cyclist and one scooter rider was killed. And it had been a planned sandag project for years and was stuck in the bureaucracy and never started. And after the second person died last year, the mayor decided we need to do something immediately. And within three weeks, there was a class four bike lineup. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Why can't they do that every time? Exactly. Yeah, they shouldn't have to wait for cyclists to die. Yes. In New York, have you heard of the Queens Boulevard? The Street Queens Boulevard? Or is it a project? Yeah, the Street Queens Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Yes. One of our family members from New York, Lizzie, she got eight miles of Queens Boulevard with bike lane. Wow. After her son got hit and killed and she tripped on how large that street was and said, where's the bike lanes? Why is there a bike lane here? 
And that has been her mission. And she just got done writing a book about the whole thing, her son's life and up to his death and then the push for that bike lane. And it was funny because one of the things she would tell the engineers when she's in these meetings with them, oh, we can't do that. There's just too much traffic coming this way and too much in this five point mm. thing. Da, da, da. And she just look at them and smile real sweetly and say, you guys are the experts. I'm sure you can figure it out. Okay. But the families for safe streets, if we have a good repertoire, we do try to scare the powers that be because we're going to come and keep bothering you until you fix it. And that's um, grassroots, but it works. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. As long as you keep squeaking, they're going to do something. And there's levels in which you can go with the media to help you. And there's a point in which you should or should not do that. But there's so many issues. But she succeeded. You'll succeed. And you just have to realize always it's a marathon, not a sprint. Thank you for that. I would definitely read her book and learn more about her experience. After we talk, I'll hook you up with her. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So you're discovering that you have this power, Laura? Yeah, I never envisioned going into advocacy, but I have a newfound motivation and I'm able to use my story for change. I realize that and I want to do anything in my power to prevent another family from having to go through this. And sharing my story is a way to personalize this and bring home the issue rather than just a cyclist that was killed. I can highlight this was a person. He was my husband, the father of my now 20 month old who will never know his dad. And that has a lot more power than just stats and people working for different organizations. Yeah, the power of family members. Beverly, you want to speak on that? Everybody is my grandkid and I want you to be able to cross the street safely. Why can't we do that? What's so damn hard about that? California Watts helped with the project on PCH where lots of people were getting killed there in Malibu. And they did everything but the one thing a seasoned truck driver recommended. And on the white line where the people are either walking or on the bike lane on PCH, they could have put those rumple strips, those little things when you ride over and they go and it wakes your ass up. They could have done that on the whole thing, which would have made any time a car went over that, it would have alerted them to move back over. And the sound would have alerted the biker so they wouldn't get hit from behind. And it wasn't a big fix. It wasn't a super expensive thing. They did a lot on PCH, don't get me wrong, but that would have been the real big life-saving thing. Why do we have to fight so hard to get what's common sense and what will save lives? I mean, I don't know if I'm going to go my whole life on this. But sometimes I just want to go to bed and never get up. It's just that terrible. And then we have this little new hope with the transportation and all the infrastructure and Pete Buttigieg. He's been talking with the families in New York and elsewhere. I hope they really put that money they get to good use. And that would be in infrastructure, public transportation, bike lanes, and clean energy to get around. And it'll help global warming. I mean, there's so many issues when you get into it that can be satisfactorily improved a lot if we would all bike and walk and get out of our cars. It's only a mile to the store. Years ago, people walked a mile like it was nothing to the store. Now we got to get in our car, drive down there, get upset, find a parking spot, right? (laughs) Go to the store. If you build it, they will come. If you build a good infrastructure, if you build a good bike lane, if you build good walking paths, people will use them. And it gets safer the more that people use them. The more people that use them, the safer it gets. And with the pandemic, they ran out of bikes. Everybody was getting bikes. And maybe that can turn into something. Let's keep it up. Let's get out and bike, save our planet. But until they make it safe, I feel weird telling you to get out and bike. Yeah, and to those points, last year, there were 16 cycling deaths in San Diego County. The previous four years average was seven. 
And to your point, really need these connected networks of bike lanes because doing a stretch here and there doesn't really allow people to get anywhere safely. My husband, Matt, he was a really choiceful rider and thought of himself as a defensive cyclist. And he rode all the time. He rode for fun, transportation, exercise, you name it. Like it was his passion. And that night he was killed. He was trying to go to the movies and there wasn't a safe way for him to get there. And he couldn't choose a protected bike lane to get to where he was trying to go. You really do need to have these protected, connected networks to be able to let people ride as well as reach so many goals that these cities have, whether it's climate or modes of transportation, traffic, whatever it is, is helping our most vulnerable riders out there. Yeah. But I know that I went along with uh, Finish the Ride one time and I was the lag car. I was a car and it was all decked out with the boys on it and everything. And we were cruising through LA with about 35 bikes. And at the end, these guys said to me, this is the best ride I've ever had in LA because you were behind us. Yeah. You know, flashers on and pictures of dead babies on the back. Okay, be careful. These people up here. You know, that was something, but I don't bike ride because I don't feel safe, number one, but Mm -hmm. it's not really been my thing since I was a little kid. And back then it was heck a lot safer because even pedestrians were safer back when I was a little kid. We had the right of way and could feel very confident to step out in the street. And it's not like that anymore because there's a humongous amount of distractions inside and outside the car. Not to take away from the fact that somebody totally screwed up. You know, I really feel for you and your situation. You need to meet our member, Iron Maiden. She was hit head on by a kid texting first thing out of his mouth when he got out of the car. And she's on her motorcycle and she went straight over the motorcycle went straight over the car and when she was laying out on the ground the kid's like i'm sorry i'm sorry i was texting okay and that's something why are you texting while you're driving number one that's a whole other story but she literally looked over and her leg was up here and she was like am i gonna die you know she was so you know so much adrenaline pumping she grabbed her leg and threw it where it's supposed to be in the midst of probably tons of pain but she was so pumped on adrenaline and She has more metal in her and a pelvic fracture. Literally, there's metal holding her hips apart because this kid wanted to drive and text because he thinks he's that good. And his punishment was next to nothing for the lifetime she has to live with all that metal in her body. So again, I'll always say until we change the heart and mind of the driver, this carnage probably will not stop. Yeah, I think it's the heart and mind of the driver for sure. Bike safety and that infrastructure is number one. But I also think the legal system has a responsibility. And that's something that I'm also starting to try to get more into. Uh, You said in Iron Maiden's case that there were hardly any repercussions. The driver who killed Matt is still on the road today. She has her driver's license despite driving the wrong way for almost the length of a football field, never seeing him, never hitting the brake. What was your reason for driving the wrong way? Just stupid or was she under the influence? There, there's no indication that she was under the influence. Do you know if um, they tested? They tried to call somebody to the scene, a drug expert, but nobody was available. But there were a couple officers there that said they didn't see any indication. I believe she was probably texting or looking at a nap or something like that. But unfortunately, that's really hard to prove. And some prosecutors believe that you have to have the smoking gun to give drivers like that a felony charge, despite what happened. And he stopped, Yes. She stopped, right. So pretty much as long as they stop and there's no DUI, then... And they feel bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, you can go. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I've been learning about is the legal system and vehicular manslaughter is considered a wobbler, which means it can be charged as 
either a felony or a misdemeanor, depending on the details. And a felony must be accompanied by gross negligence, but the definition of gross negligence is entirely subjective. Mm -hmm. And it's really up to the DA to decide. And so that creates bias and inconsistencies across different prosecutors. And so I really think that there's an opportunity to hold our district attorneys more accountable for these decisions. And then eventually, maybe there's opportunity to change the laws. Um, Well, that's probably where you need to start is changing the laws so that the district attorney can do it. The problem is wobbly laws. If they're not going to win, they don't want to take the cases. And that's kind of the truth, even if it's right or wrong. Yeah. I mean, I personally don't think that should be the reason not to take a case. And I think the fear of not winning Mm -hmm. stops them from prosecuting, even if they might win. Yeah. Well, the thing with these crashes is I call it the PDB. Anybody could have been that. And that's why jury trials stink in these situations, because only one person has to feel sorry for that guy and say that could have happened to me and oh, whoa, and wah, wah. But wrong way down the road. Come on. That's a little bit much. And that's what needs to be addressed. I did an interview years ago with uh, Bay something or other, and the man was doing an in-depth investigation about why hit and run isn't treated like it used to be. Like in the 50s, you got hit Mm. and run, you went to jail for six months and you paid a big fine. Some legislator's kid had a little collision and that law changed. And that's why it's no longer an automatic felony. And I just blew my mind when he told me that's what he discovered through all of his research. And I was like, that makes sense. It's not right, but that makes sense. Yeah. And we have to just raise up and say no more. I mean, hit and run should come with an automatic suspension of your license for a year, just like drunk driving. If you leave and you're not being responsible, you should be held totally accountable, period. Because you could have saved their life if you stopped and rendered assistance. And at the very least, been responsible to look at what you did. So I'm really sorry for your loss. And it really does stink because it could have been totally prevented. Well, thank you. So Laura's in San Diego. Mm-hmm. I assume you have things going on in San Diego, Beverly. I am not sure, but we could use okay. one. You can begin one right where you're at and we will help you all the way to do it right. because they need one. It's crazy mm-hmm. down there. I know it's crazy down there. We'll talk later about what you want to do and how to go about getting a family started. But I'll find out after and let you know. Because if there's one down there, we'll just hook you into them. If there's not one down there, we'll talk about how to get you started. Because we just got families for safe streets up here for Point Rainimi. But everybody falls under the SoCal family umbrella. So if you're in San Diego, you're with us right there from SoCal. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Great. So please keep in touch, Laura. And of course, Grandma Beverly. Did you want to talk about anything else? Yeah, there are just a couple additional points that I'd like to raise. I really wanted to make sure that I brought up awareness around the debate against protected bike lanes. Unfortunately, bike lanes are controversial and it really breaks my heart and angers me. Some business owners and some people in general think of bike lanes as using up a parking space or traveling lanes and as an extra cost for people like me and other bike road advocates. It's really a matter of life and death. I'm living my worst nightmare every day. And if there's anything that our community can do to help save lives, I think that should be the center of the conversation. And so I'm really working hard to refocus the conversation on what is most important, saving lives. And I also think it's important that we acknowledge the other side's concerns. Parking spaces and travel lanes are valid, but it shouldn't be where the conversation starts. And I think there's opportunities to reach middle ground 
but also understand the real facts that are out there because while some people think a removal of a parking spot might hurt businesses, there's actually data that shows otherwise. And so I think that people really need to be informed before they make arguments that could affect a person's life. So that's something I'm really trying to focus my conversations on. I do have an ask for people if that's appropriate. My ask would be for everybody to advocate to the best of their ability to hold drivers accountable for their actions and to improve bike infrastructure. And so I've noticed that you have some elected officials on your podcast. So for those people, it could be through a position of influence, but for the general public, I'd ask them to reach out to their council members to support funding for these types of quick build proposals and bike infrastructure projects to make streets safer for all. And then also on the legal side to contact their district attorney to support stiffer charges and penalties to treat cyclist fatalities with the gravity that um, consequences the drivers are causing. All right. We would love to keep in touch with you. And you want to say your handle on Twitter? Yes, it's Keenan Bike. So please follow me if you can. I try to follow different bike advocates and also share my voice. My goal is really to just prevent another family from having to live with the pain we will for life. All right. Well, I hope you get in touch with Grandma Beverly and thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is Ben and Esso and Halima. Ben and Halima, your bike tweets got a lot of reaction on Twitter. And I was just wondering if you would talk to us about them. Tell us what you tweeted and what some of the responses were and your reactions to it. Oh, and Esso, I asked you to interview them this time. Would you want to give it a shot? I will take off my hat and throw it into the ring. Hi, Ben. Hi, Halima. First of all, Ben, why don't you give us some uh, background on the tweet? I saw in a group that somebody posted a picture of a sign in their neighborhood in Springfield, Oregon, telling people to get engaged about a uh, road construction project on the main street of their town. And it features highlights of all sorts of different things like nine roundabouts, um, no center turn lane, uh, raised median. And then the, the, the highlight at the bottom there gives you the 18 foot bike lanes, which is incredible, right? But um, if you go not to the website they have on the sign, because that website doesn't exist. They put the wrong website on there. Um, but if you go to the correct website, which is ourmainstreetspringfield.com, you'll see that it's not an 18 foot bike lane. It's a, let's see, it's a six foot bike lane on each side with a three foot buffer. And added together, that makes 18 feet. Um, I tweeted it because it was funny and I thought other people thought it would be funny. Um, there was some conversation on there uh, about whether it was 18 feet high, 18 feet long, 18 feet wide, but yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. I like the reaction that I got. So do you live in Springfield? Um, I do not. I live in Corvallis, which is probably like Oh boy, I want to say like an hour, maybe 45 minutes north of Springfield. Um, Springfield's close to Eugene, Corvallis is middle of nowhere, feels like. But yeah, I've been there quite a few times. I've got family down there. So obviously your tweet uh, gained a lot of attention. And I'm curious uh, what you thought about some of the responses. And maybe you can highlight a couple for us. Here, let me, uh, let me go over to it. 
uh, there were quite a few responses here. Uh, <laughs> um, this one guy says that you would read this and you would think that they would are describing Armageddon, the, the book in the Bible or the movie, take your pick. Um, says he hates to be that guy, but the Americans will coalesce outrage over things that should be inspiring. Um, another comment says uh, he's curious if the bike lanes are 18 feet wide, high or long. Lots of other ones here. Uh, this one guy says he prefers the sunken median as opposed to the raised median alternative. Sure. Now, do you think that uh, some people thought that the signage might have possibly been fake? Um, I didn't see any comments on here about fake, uh, the signage being fake. Uh, probably because I've seen something stuff like that in other cities previously. Um, like, I think I saw something like that in like mm, Central California, uh, Berkeley, Bay Area type type stuff. They've got that kind of stuff everywhere. It seems whenever they try to do a road project, it's like, oh my god, um, they're gonna put in like a a, a little like five foot bike lane, and then I'm, I'm not gonna be able to like access like you know, four parking spaces, and then where am I going to park my truck? And I want to know who funds all this stuff. It's, it's pretty incredible. Uh, was there additional research after you posted a tweet that you kind of like delved into as far as the accuracy, not only of the signage, but the comments that followed? Kind of. I went to the website that they had on the sign and I found that it doesn't exist. Um, it got removed by whoever was hosting it. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, generally it's not too much research goes into my tweets. I just kind of send it and I forget it. Like, oh, I made me laugh and then <laughs> post it. Or... Sure. I think there's an enterprising individual possibly listening that might want to uh, reenact the signage on that particular street if it's no longer there. <laughs> Maybe with an updated URL, possibly. Somebody said that they uh, they wanted to go over there and they put green checks next to each line item. I was sort of checking them off, you know. That could possibly be uh, a good thing, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, Halima, your tweet. Uh, we were delving into maybe the fashion side of bicycling. Yes. This is like my first year winter biking. Um, and I had to get a bunch of stuff for, you know, just to be comfortable on the road. And I started noticing that all the purchases that I was making were bike related or bike specific. So I just tweeted out and was like, you know, soon my whole entire wardrobe will be all bike stuff. Is this how it starts? And uh, it must have resonated with a lot of people on bike Twitter because everybody was telling me all the things like, you know, just how far it goes. People were telling me that I would be, you know, buying some power bars and you know just buying socks that were uh bike specific or bike specific shoes um i got a ton of tips from people you know i i guess a couple people said that they use bread bags um to protect their feet which i had never thought of so that was pretty interesting uh but it's pretty uh it's it's a and i got to actually meet um and in you know virtually of course uh, a lot of people in bike twitter and they're very very passionate group uh very welcoming very very kind and as somebody who bikes in the suburbs uh, it's it's very nice to have um i guess i guess that type of community 
Fantastic. Uh, can you, for the listeners, uh, describe uh, what you were wearing on this particular day and in the photo? Sure. I was uh, in uh, a winter jacket that I had just purchased from um, a Portland-based company, um, and I had a baklava or I one is it one is the one is the uh, dessert and the other one is a face covering. But uh, I had that on covering my face, which I had also recently purchased. And I was like very toasty and, and had a really nice, I just come back from a really nice bike ride. So I was like, oh, like, you know, just kind of decided to post it up there. And the, I noticed, and the jacket. I was going to say, I noticed that the jacket was getting a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. So the jacket has um, a city design on it that is reflective. So it's uh, it's very practical, but it's also very uh, fashionable at the same time. Uh, I think a lot of times when you see cyclists, and I, and I do also have like the orange vest and the ugly neon colored stuff, but this is like, you know, it's like form meets function type of style where you get to wear a black jacket and it, you know, glows up uh, as you're outside so it's very safe and you feel very protected especially at night not so much on a gray gloomy day but it works and um i i love that jacket i actually wear it outside of biking so it's kind of nice oh so the jacket is doing double duty yes uh what were some of the reactions that you got to the tweet anything stand out what stood out was just kind of people saying that like this is just a slippery slope and that my entire wardrobe would become bike specific and I tend to agree with them because now uh, as somebody who regularly bike commutes um, I find it that it's a lot easier to look for pants that aren't going to get caught up in your chain I think a couple people were saying like you know uh, you're get like skinny jeans are still in because everybody hates skinny jeans now, but for the purposes of biking, they're very technically uh, sound. Um, I, I got a, peop a couple people told me that overalls were great, which again, functionally, it's it makes sense. It's one piece and you don't have to worry about it. I think what was what stood out to me the most is that there's a lot of people out there that are bike commuters that are just that wear regular clothing um, and that aren't wearing the, the racer type. Because I think for me as a new cyclist, I was very much, I felt that a lot of cyclists were the spandex type and, you know, always riding in road bikes and whatnot. And so to get responses for people who ride cargo bikes, people who ride um, uh, upstyle, Dutch style bikes, people who ride all types of bikes. It was wonderful. What do you think about Twitter, specifically hashtag bike Twitter? Um, was this something that you were familiar with before your tweet? Or was this something that you became familiar with after you tweeted? I was already pretty well acquainted um, with bike Twitter, if you, if you want to say that. I tweet quite often about uh, riding my bike and my cargo bike and my road bike and all my other, my other two bikes. Um, I, I'm a big fan of it. I met quite a few friends on there, um, both real life and virtual. Uh, I got connected with the Portland bike advocacy, uh, sphere. Oh boy. 
back in 2020 because of it. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge fan. Halima? I was a little bit not familiar with bike Twitter uh, just because I had joined Twitter uh, April of last year. So just a little bit of background on where I live. I live right outside of Washington, D.C. I live in Prince George's County in, on the Maryland side. Um, and I had met before some, you know, bike DC people, um, out and about on trails, but I really didn't know that bike Twitter existed. Uh, so I, it was very interesting to me when, when I first started my, uh, Twitter experience, it was just a way for me to vent about how terrible the Strudes were that I was riding on or how terrible the sidewalks that I was riding on were. Um, in a way for me to reach uh, my local government people, I guess. Uh, so that was like my initial reasons for creating it. And also because I had gotten, um, I had gotten my e-bike. And so I was like, this is awesome. Like, I want to share this because I thought it was like the greatest thing ever. And it still is. And so when I started getting responses from people in bike Twitter and started following other accounts and things like that. I just realized how huge it is. And now I know, well, I interact with people on Twitter from all parts of the world. Uh, some people who have amazing infrastructure, which is nice to see. Uh, and then some people who don't have such nice infrastructure. So you get to kind of have that like, oh, we're, we're in the same boat. Like, you know, we have terrible uh, infrastructure for riding our bikes. And then you, you just get to see everybody from all spectrums, all ages, um, all genders, everything. So it's been pretty surreal because I guess that tweet like got a lot of um, responses, but it was like really surreal to see that there's like all these people that the one thing that we share is that we're part of this bike community and uh, we just try to like be there for each other in some way on a social platform. Fantastic. I wanna thank you both for your time and for sharing your tweets. Uh, is there anything that you wanna leave for the listeners, possibly shout out your uh, handle on Twitter. And so people could possibly follow you as well. My handle is at B Freiback, F-R-Y-B-A-C-K. And Halima? Sure. Uh, it's PG on two wheels. So PG, uh, the number two and wheels. Well, you'll get a new follower right here. Thanks again for both of your time. Thank you. Thank you for having oh, us. Catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a fire. Oh, catch yourself a fire. Oh, catch yourself a fire.